Good morning. Thank you for joining us this morning. We are in our Sunday school hour, and in Sunday school, we're going through a New Testament survey, and we're going to continue that this morning. And before we start, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help this morning. Heavenly Father, you are a good and gracious King. We thank you that we can come to you with our needs, and I pray this morning that you would help us to see you more clearly, help us to um, find our rest in you. I pray that you would help this morning, give us clarity, help us to see your word as true, as authoritative, and help us to submit and to respond and worship to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Has anyone ever accused you of being a Christian? Worse yet, has anyone ever told you that you're not a Christian? Your relationship to God is of eternal significance. So this morning, I want to start by just asking you, how do you stand before the Lord today? There are several passages of Scripture that confirm eternal security of the believer. When we're saved, we are given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a promise, as a down payment for the consummation the final completed work of salvation. Jesus himself said that we are in his hand and that his hand is in the Father's hand and he is greater than him and no one can be snatched out of the Father's hand. But how do we know personally that we belong to Jesus? Thankfully, God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has given us answers to these very real, very personal questions And these answers can be found in the epistle of 1 John, which we'll be looking at this morning. Before we dive in, let's take a look at the background um, and the setting as we typically do in our survey. And then we'll jump into uh, the text this morning together as well. First in our background and survey, I wanted to give us the really quick overview. We usually talk about author, audience, and the time frame in which it was written. So... Uh, Big picture view, the author is anonymous, based on the content of the letter. The audience is unspecified, and the time is, like usual, a little unsure. So, let's pray. Be blessed. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I just thought it was uh, interesting that we're kind of transitioning a little bit. This is more of a general epistle, and we have to actually use some resources outside of the letter itself to come to some conclusions about this context that we're going to see in the letter of First John. Although the author is not claimed in the letter itself, um, there is strong internal and external evidence that the apostle John was the author. Externally, we know that Polycarp, Irenaeus, Origen, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, and others of the early church fathers Um, regarded this letter as both authoritative and attributed to the Apostle John. Some of these names may be lost to us, um, but I I will let you know a few of them that are are really pertinent, um, especially Polycarp and Irenaeus. John's direct disciple was Polycarp, and Polycarp's disciple was Irenaeus. So their writings are like talking about their spiritual father and their spiritual grandfather in regards to intimate relationship with one another. So that's a very strong support um, in regards to authorship. And internally, 
we see a lot of vocab, a lot of phrases, um, a lot of the style of the author relates directly to the gospel of John. It all points to the same author. History tells us that John was the sole survivor of the apostles. He was the last man standing as the last person on the planet that had intimate eyewitness association with Jesus during his ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. John's testimony was highly authoritative. Based on this information, we can confidently identify the author of this letter as the Apostle John. But who was he writing to? And although the audience is not very specific, um, in general he's writing to believers. This letter isn't written to a specific individual or church or a specific region of churches as we've seen in some of our other studies. But according to the early church fathers, we know that John actually lived several of his senior years in Ephesus as a general overseer of the churches in that area. John was in charge of an extensive evangelistic program as well as an extensive writing program. This is likely where he wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John as well. It's likely that John was writing to churches in and around Ephesus, so in the Asia Minor area. In regards to the time frame, this seems to be most likely later in his life. As mentioned earlier, um, he had an extensive writing program in his later years. And although it's difficult to pinpoint, there's evidence internally and externally that would point us to around 90 to 95 AD. So he's an older man. A lot of the language in the letter regards, he uses the word children. And a lot of these are his spiritual children that he's shepherding and overseeing. And even though some of these details are vague... This letter is very much not vague. It's very, very black and white, as we will see. And what also is black and white is it's very clear the purpose with which John was writing this letter. If you turn over to chapter 5, we're going to see in chapter 5, verse 13, a clear statement of purpose. And this is very characteristic of John's writing. He's a very good and clear communicator of the purpose of his writings. If you recall from the Gospel of John, he told us in chapter 20, verse 31, that these are written that ye or you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. In John's Gospel, he was writing to create faith and life. He was seeking to evangelize those that were lost. A similar purpose is written here in the first epistle of John. John's purpose is presented to us in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God for this reason, that you may know that you have eternal life. It's interesting to compare the gospel of John with the letter of 1 John to say, Really, the gospel is, is meant for those that are lost. It's an evangelistic tool versus this letter is for those that are found. Gospel is a great tool for evangelism, whereas this is more geared toward discipleship. The gospel was meant to generate faith. But John is writing this letter to ground your faith. Here are some titles that others have used to summarize the book of 1 John. Some have called it, um, Recall the Fundamentals of the Faith. Some say, back to the basics, 
of Christianity. More well-known or referenced as well in, is the title of this letter as the Epistle of Assurance. Thirteen times John uses the phrase, we know. And different forms of the verb to know are used 40 times in just five chapters. John desires for these believers he's writing to to have certainty of faith and to possess eternal life, for it to be a reality. He wants them to have assurance that their faith in God is real, that it's personal, that it's actual. But why did John write this letter? Why this topic? Why this time? Well, we need to look at some context in regards to history as well. During the last third of the first century, the heresy of Gnosticism was beginning to spread like a virus throughout the world, and even infiltrating the early church. Gnosticism is just a word that means knowledge. And this heresy advocated a philosophy of dualism, which in our context means physical is bad, spiritual is good. That's a Hopefully a brief synopsis for us, but much like we see today, this heresy decided that instead of divine revelation standing over man's ideas, they wanted to have man's ideas in judgment over God's divine revelation. This happens to us nowadays. We see it all the time. People twisting scripture to line it up with man's thoughts, man's ideas. Science will reveal something, philosophical ideas will come out, and people want to force Scripture into that mold rather than sit under the authority of Scripture and interpret man's philosophies in light of that. Specifically with Gnosticism, during John's time, he was fighting against two specific areas, two specific heresies. One was denying that Christ's humanity was real. They wanted to say that Christ wasn't really a human. He wasn't a man. He didn't have a physical body. And their goal in this was was good intentions, right? They were trying to say, well, if physical is evil or bad, then Christ must have not had a physical body. John combats this in lots of ways, but even in the opening parts of the letter, he says, that which we have seen, that's what we have heard, which we have touched, He says that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. He's specifically fighting against this heresy that's infiltrating the church because he sees it as important. A second version of this sort of heresy was started up by a a man named Serenthus. And he thought that Christ's spirit descended on Jesus at baptism and left prior to crucifixion. Which Jesus also combats at the end of chapter 5 or towards the beginning actually in regards to the testimony of God to Jesus being testified to by the Spirit, by the water, and the blood, all testifying to Jesus Christ being the divine God-man and the only begotten Son of God. Secondarily, not only were there heresies around Jesus' physical body not being a reality, but with most of heresy, they had an elevated or mystical or superior knowledge They thought that they were smarter or had a higher authority than Scripture itself. God's words breathed out. Oftentimes, they would just say, if you don't agree with us, then you're just not enlightened. You don't have the truth. John's description of these false teachers is really clear throughout the letter. To give you a summary of what these heretics were saying is they would say that they were without sin. They said that Jesus didn't come in the flesh. 
They said that Jesus did not die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He indicates also that they did not care about pursuing holiness and that they didn't love other Christians. Those who did not conform to these heretics or false teachers' way of thinking were basically told that they're not real Christians. This is the context in which John is writing to these churches because lots of doubt was being sown. Lots of fears and questions of, well, what if I'm missing out? What if I don't know something? I think you can really empathize probably in your own life, in your own spiritual walk, that times of doubting, times of unsurety. And that's why John is writing this letter. He aims to doctrinally refute the false teachers and pastorally really provide assurance for those whose faith has been shaken. He doesn't want to provide a blanket assurance of, it'll all be okay, of course you're all believers. And he doesn't want prescribed assurance, just listing out a, a book of names to say, yes, all these people that are listed, you're definitely a believer. Instead, he actually provides tests for, or evidence for, assurance of God's grace in the life of a believer. Let's look really quick at an outline that might be a helpful tool for you as you look to dive into 1 John. You'll see there's kind of four categories. The foundation for assurance, the test of assurance, or the tests, plural, rather, the witness of assurance, and the summary of assurance. Assurance is really a key theme throughout this letter that John is wanting to pinpoint And he does it in a very different way than how we've seen in a lot of the Pauline letters. Paul is very logical, very linear. As we've described before, he's he's like a lawyer that presents an argument, a logical presentation of where he's trying to go. John in this letter is, is much more repetitive. He's very personal. It's like a conversation. When you're talking with somebody and they're trying to make a point, they'll kind of go back to it over and over again in different ways with different perspectives. But he's very cyclical. You could say. Paul is more like a roller coaster. You're on the rails and you're going forward at a million miles an hour, whereas John is more of a Ferris wheel. He wants to take you around, give you that view over and over again. In John's repetition, he is always going back to, or through rather, these themes the cycle of truth, obedience, and love. Truth, obedience, and love. John really wants to communicate to his audience that a proper belief in who Jesus is produces obedience in his commands. And obedience looks like this. It looks like love for God and love for fellow believers. When sound doctrine, obedience, and love operate in concert together, joy, holiness, and assurance are sure to follow in the life of a believer. These themes are John's tests of assurance for us. He wants us to know the truth and obey God's commands. He wants us to believe in Christ rightly and to love Christ's people genuinely. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 23. Gives us kind of a summary statement of this idea. Chapter 3, verses 23 says, And this is his commandment. 
that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. I want to make sure up front to specify that everything we're going to talk about through these tests has to be submitted to and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's really what these evidences are. He's wanting to put his thumb on your neck to say, do you have a pulse? Is the Holy Spirit at work in you to produce fruit? That's what these tests are supposed to indicate, and he really lumps them into two categories, two categories of tests, the doctrinal test and the moral test. The doctrinal test and the moral test. Similar to a physician, John is wanting to check your vitals for your spiritual life. Let's look together at first the doctrinal test. Now, before we dive in, doctrine is something that can seem at times to us very academic. For some people, maybe even very detached from reality or from real life. Some would say that while important, it's not very practical or impactful. Some even feel that it is um, something that only produces arrogance and pride and actually can be a hindrance to unity. But John had a very different view of doctrine. He saw doctrine as vital to the life of a believer. Specifically, there are two tests that he presents throughout this letter. The first we'll spend our time in, and the second one uh, we won't have a ton of time for this morning. But the two tests are, um, who do you believe Jesus is, and what do you believe to be true about sin? He wants to define for us who Christ was. Remember that these false teachers were saying that Jesus didn't have a real body. Look with me in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Throughout this letter, John will reference fellowship or walking with the Lord or abiding in him. These are all phrases that John uses to talk about Genuine salvation, a real relationship with God, a permanent relationship with God. And he's equating here that there's a reality about who Jesus was, that he actually came physically to this earth as the God-man, and he connects that with fellowship with God. This is a doctrinal necessity for the believer. Look with me over at chapter 2 as well. Chapter 2, verses 20 through 25. He says again in regards to the test of doctrine. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. And you know, excuse me, you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. In this passage, John is very clear. If you deny that Jesus is God, that means that you don't have eternal life. And that's why this is a test for believers. If you say that you're a believer, you say that you're a Christian, but you don't believe that Jesus is God, that he came and took on flesh, then you are not a Christian. You are not trusting in God for salvation. This is a necessity to know and believe this. Third example in our text this morning is chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. In regards to spiritual life, as we mentioned earlier, being a believer, at the time of conversion, you are actually indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And he says here in verse 2, he says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. He's saying that if you know the Holy Spirit, if you are truly a believer, then he ties this to knowing that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Because the Holy Spirit actually guides and guards us into truth. John is wanting to make the point that right belief is crucial to our assurance as a believer. But why is he banging this drum over and over again in this letter? Why is it so important that we believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? There's lots of conclusions or dominoes that fall because of that answer, but to give you a one-word answer to summarize it, I would say atonement. Atonement. Think of it this way. Jesus Christ is our satisfying, substitutionary sacrifice for sins. We learned in the Old Testament that God established a system of sacrifice. And it was never meant to be the atonement for sin, but simply a picture pointing forward to say, you need someone to pay for your sins. And Jesus is that lamb. But he has to be both the satisfying and substitutionary sacrifice. Satisfying, we could tie to the word deity or God. The only one that can satisfy our sin debt to God is God himself. Man is tainted with sin and we can't pay for our own sins. So it must be God. But what about substitutionary? We need someone in our place because we can't satisfy our sin debt. For it to be a substitute, it has to be someone who was made like us. Flip over to Hebrews really quick. Hebrews chapter 2. This is just such a perfect verse in regards to the necessity of Christ coming in the flesh. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, being Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. And through death, that through death, excuse me, that he might destroy the one 
who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It is essential for us to believe that Jesus is our mediator, our high priest, that he is God in flesh, incarnate, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, Emmanuel, God with us. It is an essential piece for a believer to understand that our atonement, our salvation hangs on this truth. Salvation is dependent upon a right view of Christ, plain and simple. We often in our day and age are concerned with attacks on Christianity by atheists or skeptics, but the greater danger the church faces is actually false teaching about Christ. Mark Dever says it this way, the real danger is not unbelief, but wrong belief, not irreligion, but heresy. Not the doubter, but the deceiver. Wrong belief, heresy, and deceivers are what concern John. So John refutes the idea that Christ was merely a fleshless, impersonal principle that we can tap into for higher energy. He also refutes the idea that Jesus was merely a teacher who taught the way of God, who became hungry, tired, and one day just bled and died. No, John upholds the real Jesus. Jesus was God incarnate. We must get the doctrine of Christ's person right because our salvation hangs on it. It's important to clarify this morning that when we think of the doctrinal test, it's not a test of extensive knowledge. It's not something where you have to know everything about all of the story of redemption and narrative of history. Daniel Whittle is a hymn writer that wrote several verses about aspects of God's narrative history or the history of redemption. And he wrote in all these uh, verses that he didn't know something or fully comprehend God's grace, God's love, God's character even in, in full picture. And we can't. We are finite. He is infinite. But in the chorus, he writes these words, but I know whom I have believed in. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him until that day. The question for us this morning is, do you know who you have believed in? Do you know? Who do you believe Jesus was? Maybe this morning this is the first time you've heard of Jesus coming in the flesh as God himself. This is a starting point for you, and I would exhort you, encourage you to dive into God's word to answer that question. Who was Jesus? You will find him to be both God and man, your savior, the only one that can pay for your sins and to bring eternal life to you. But clearly, the apostle John wasn't just interested in merely doctrine alone. He's not saying that doctrine alone, this is an intellectual assent. 
A doctrine alone isn't sufficient to save. There are other tests that he wants us to look at. And we know from James that even the demons believe and tremble, right? They believe right things about who Jesus was. And so John gives us another test for knowing we are in Christ. That test this morning that we're going to look at is the moral test. The moral test. As I was thinking through this, thinking about the word vital in regards to the medical field, I know very little to nothing about the medical field, but um, I think of the first test as kind of a cognitive test. If you've ever had a head injury, they'll ask you, what's your name, what year is it, social security number, date of birth, don't give them that. You know, they'll want to make sure that your thinking is right, but the moral test is more of a pulse check, right? It's like, is your cardiovascular system working? That's a big word for a non-medical guy. Is your heart working? Is it pumping blood? Can you move? Do the finger test. Do you have a pulse? That's what he's wanting to check here in the moral test. And the first one we're going to look at this morning is, do you obey Christ? We must have a right response to Christ's commands, and the only response for a believer is obedience. Is obedience. Look with me in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. John is calling the believer to obedience. Jesus said it himself in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will, what? Keep my commandments. Look down further in chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. This actually gives us a picture pointing forward. Our obedience has a future goal. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We are called to pursue holiness. We want to get to that moment as a believer to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. This needs to be a characteristic of a believer and a good test for us to evaluate is, am I obeying Christ? Am I walking in obedience? Chapter 3, verses 7 through 10 probably says it most directly. Look with me in chapter 3, starting in verse 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because He has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. 
Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is very black and white. So the question we need to ask is, does this mean if I sin, I'm no longer a child of God? John would say adamantly, no. Flip back to chapter 1. It's important when studying scripture that we don't isolate or take things just merely out of context and just interpret scripture in in a zoned in or zoomed in view, but that we take the piece of the letter in light of the whole letter. Chapter 1 verse 9 is a verse that we're very familiar with. He says, if we confess our sins, speaking to believers, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, here's the good news. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Please know I'm not aiming to take the teeth out of this passage we read in chapter 3. John is being very direct and even simple, really, on purpose. Throughout the letter, we see no gray area. He's, he's contrasting truth and lie, light and darkness. You either love God or you love the world. In this passage, either you're children of God or you're children of the devil. You either practice righteousness or you practice sinning. You either love your brother or you hate your brother. You either have life or death. You either confess Christ or you deny Christ. And we need to hear this loud and clear this morning. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God. This ought to bring about conviction and produce repentance in the heart of a believer. And it also ought to ignite a a fire for holiness dependent upon God's grace. What John is saying in this passage is, if you are a child of God, you will live like God. If you are a child of the devil, you will live like the devil. It's really plain and simple. No Christian perfectly lives like God. And no non-Christian, thankfully by God's grace, is exactly like the devil either. Still, the contrasts in John's letter portrays a stark and absolute distinction No matter who you are this morning, your life will display one general pattern or the other. To clarify, John is not saying that Christians are just nice people or vice versa. If you're a nice person, then obviously you're a Christian. That's what the test says. No, he's not saying that. This test of obedience, this moral test is subsequent to the doctrinal test. These have to be seen in conjunction with one another. This moral test of obedience to Christ is really ought to be seen as the proof of the doctrinal test. Do you live like what you say you believe to be true? Does your walk match your talk? The second moral test that John gives for us, some commentators will put it as a third test. They'll call it the social test. But Jesus ties these two together, when he's asked to sum up the law, he says, love 
the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It's a command. That's the law. So I, I think it's best for us to tie these together into the moral test, but they do stack on each other. These tests are hinged together. And this second moral test for us is, do you love your brother? Do you have genuine love for Christ's people? Look with me in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. John writes, Beloved, I am writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him. There is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I think when first reading this passage, we can get kind of confused. Is he contradicting himself? It's not new, it's old, but it's new. He's actually doing some wordplay for us. In regards to this being an old commandment, we've seen it in the Old Testament. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's very clear God's command to love the Lord your God and to love God's people. But he says this is a new commandment in a way, and that way is Jesus himself. There's a new, fresh, visible way that we see this command to love one another, and that's in Jesus John wrote in his gospel, chapter 13, verse 34, he says, I give you a new commandment. So we can reference the same author's letter and kind of catch on to this verbiage. And he says, just as I have loved you, is what Jesus says. As I have modeled for you, you are to love one another. That is this new command, yet an old command. It's been the same, but it's, we have a new light because of Jesus. We can see it. It's visible. Look with me in chapter 13 as well. John reiterates our command to love other believers in chapter 3, verses 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. There's no middle ground here. It's one or the other. John is basically saying you can believe right, you can act right, but if you don't have love for God's people, then you're not a Christian. It's essential. It's vital. Some may object, well, I love God. I love Jesus. I love learning about him. I love following him. I can't help that some people are just not my type. John would want you to flip over to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. Jesus is the model for our love and the standard. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother... He is a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And and this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. John here is arguing from the greater to the lesser. He's saying, if you say that you have love for God, but you don't love your brother, this is a smaller scale. You haven't seen God, but you see your brother. You see that they're made in the image of God, that he died on the cross showing his amazing love for them, and yet you don't love what God loves? You don't love God's people? Then you can't be a believer. It's the mark of a believer, a vital test. I think it's important for us to think this morning, what makes us think that we love God? Is it our doctrinal correctness? Maybe our meticulous obedience? Or is it that warm, fuzzy feeling you get when we sing our worship songs at church on Sunday? All these things will prove to be merely a mirage. If our love for God is not demonstrated in a love for God's people. Jesus said in John 13:35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Get this, Jesus is so identified with his people that he says that our attitude towards other Christians is our attitude For Jesus himself. Are you striving to obey Christ? Or are you content with doing your own thing? Do you love your brothers and sisters here at Redemption Hill Church? Is it evident? Could somebody convict you of that? I think an honest test of love for other believers is is seeking to serve one another after a disagreement. When you, when you aren't warm and fuzzy with one another, when it's somebody you don't get along on or isn't that person that you just click with right away, the love of God supersedes personality types. It's not subject to it. And we will evidence the amazing love of our Savior, Jesus Christ, when we seek to love people that are difficult to love. And we need to ask for God's help in that. It's not something we do in our own strength, but we do need to pursue it, to lean into it. If any of these tests John provides are taken apart from the others, they become hollow. I tried to think through different types if you're missing one piece or the other. And you can have an antisocial, you can have a zombie, or you can have a quadriplegic. But he's saying, if that's your spiritual status, you're not alive. You need all of these pieces, right? The right thinking, the right movement, the right obedience, and the right heart. It's essential, all three. As Christians, we find great assurance as we believe the right things about Jesus, and as we obey what God has commanded, and as we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Our assurance is not based on past spiritual experiences, but by the evidence of the Holy Spirit bearing fruit in our lives. Let us together dependently strive 
for lives that are radically transformed by the powerful gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're dismissed.